Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Two uh, principal factors that determine the long-term after-effects of emotionally resonant events, situations in life, ranging from the unpleasant all the way to the uh, scary and traumatic. One of the factors we talk about a lot is just basically early attachment patterns that happen in infancy, uh, depending upon the resonance of our connection with others, how, how secure we feel with our caregivers, um, then in adult life during really stressful situations, we will be expected as adults to respond flexibly, to um, seek concrete support from others, we'll collaborate well, we'll regain, regain a sense of safety through connection, but in times when we're not connected, we'll be able to uh, process the emotional events uh, internally. If we had uh, early experiences where sometimes secure attachment was present and sometimes it wasn't, so in other words, are unreliable connections in childhood, then as adults, during challenging events, our emotions will be intensified, we'll over-rely on single individuals as opposed to seek connection with whoever is available, there will be a tendency towards hypervigilance, and there will be insomnia and issues with appetite and so forth. And if we have avoidant tendencies, then we will have uh, gravitate towards extreme self-reliance. We won't connect with others. We'll block our emotional needs for support. We'll find ourselves in the long-term incapable of trust, intimacy, and depression. Whereas the anxious will find themselves in the long-term still struggling with anxiety disorders. So that's one factor, but those factors do not have to be, you know, what our early childhood experience was, doesn't have to be determinative. It's an influential factor, but it doesn't define us. Another important factor that we're going to be talking about tonight is how do we translate our life experiences into coherent stories. Uh, Even attachment wounds of the the most traumatic can be over time minimized if we learn how to develop a coherent narrative or a way to interpret experience in a way that's both integrating our personal experience with transpersonal events where we can uh, lay out events in a coherent sequence where we can understand uh, certain key elements of um, our emotions. And this work I'm going to be talking about tonight is building on the work of a whole wide range of uh, both therapists as well as early Buddhist teaching. Contemporary therapists like Dan Siegel, uh, collaborative therapy, 
REBT therapy of Albert Ellis, EMDR, adult attachment of Mary Main, Zajonk and Pennebaker's work in uh, narrative uh, meaning and for self-regulation and so forth and so on. But um, so let's just get started. So why is the ability to turn emotionally distressing, disturbing experiences or challenging experiences into a story that we can recite to other people that will be understandable, that other people will be able to appreciate. Uh, why is it so important? Well, I've sort of given away one reason, which is if we can't translate our experiences into languaging that other people can follow, then the ability of others to regulate our emotions through being empathetic will be hindered because they won't un have a clue what we're talking about. So if we try to convey emotional events in a rambling sequence that's impossible to follow and uh, mixes up the personal with the transpersonal and so forth, then over time what happens is our ability to bond and seek support from others is of course compromised. But there's an even more fundamental reason than that. During, for instance, traumas, for instance, a, uh, a soldier uh, who is in Afghanistan uh, posted in an extremely unsafe region and suddenly a roadside bomb goes off and kills uh, his friend sitting next to him in a bus. During this experience, which is so emotionally overpowering, the the flood of neurotransmitters, especially glutamate, cortisol, adrenaline, acetylcholine, and so forth, becomes so fast and so flooding that the individual's left hemisphere essentially, which is, allows for narrative functions, shuts down. And so the memory of the trauma is only stored in very archaic memory structures like the amygdala and the right brain. What does this mean? Well, when we have an, a, an emotionally powerful event that we cannot turn into a story or even remember the bulk of it, then what happens is your right brain, which is timeless and has no sense of a past or a present or a future, holds the trauma. And it believes even years afterwards that we're still in the unsafe environment. So essentially the right amygdala and the right brain doesn't know that that soldier has now returned to the States or whatever country they're from. They're no longer in danger of any roadside bomb going off, yet still that individual back home will dive at the sound of a truck backfiring. He is triggered into defensive actions because his right brain still believes that he's back in Afghanistan or that dangers are still everywhere. Now, it's only when that individual goes into some form of therapy and talks about their trauma, their experiences, and um, essentially uh, learns to uh, process it 
that they will be able to integrate the left hemisphere, which timestamps the events and tells the right brain that it's no longer happening. That's how powerful the ability to narrate our life is. It integrates left and right, and it informs emotional memories that we're safe now. Until we can develop that process or that narration of events, the early structures of memory still believe that we are unsafe. Now, let's jump ahead to or to the side and talk about this from another angle. Uh, the great Albert Ellis, who was the founder of REBT therapy and one of the major American therapists. And he created what was called an ABC model of suffering. A being any event that happens in life. So for this, the purposes of this example, I'm just going to use a situation where you're walking down the street and you don't have your mask on because you're more than six feet away from other people. Maybe you're walking a dog or you're just in a safe place where you don't have to get too close. And you see a good friend on the other side of the street and they're not wearing their mask. So you can wave to them, but they don't wave back. And it looks to you as if they saw you and yet they haven't waved back. Now, the B of the ABC theory is how you interpret that event. Now, suppose you interpret that event as, damn, I waved at my friend, I haven't done anything wrong, and they haven't waved back. What's the matter with them? Or did I do something wrong? And so C is the result. And if, you, if we interpret that as that person saw me and didn't wave back, then see the result will be suffering. I'll feel bad about myself. I'll feel bad about the relationship. I'll feel in some way rejected. But Ellis said, suppose instead of interpreting it as my friend saw me and didn't wave back, suppose I interpret it in an entirely different way. Suppose I interpret it as they didn't see me. They were lost in thought. They didn't see me waving to them. So, in fact, there was, this experience was essentially not about me at all, not about the relationship. They just didn't see me. Ellis said, in that case, there will be no suffering in the long term. This is important to understand or grasp because what Ellis is saying is it doesn't really matter as much what the actual events or experiences are in life. It's how we interpret them how we turn them into a story. If we turn events into something personal about me, in other words, shame, or something about the other person, blame, then there'll be a lot of suffering in the aftermath. But if we construct a story that neither revolves around it's my fault or their fault, that they just in essence didn't see me, or that something else was going on, then there's little suffering in the long term. Ellis argued that our interpretations are far more important than actually even the experiences in, them, in and of themselves because it's the nature of taking experiences personally that make them so painful in the long term. And this is important because it completely not only 
gives us insight into how certain narratives can cause suffering, but also it significantly overlaps with the Buddha's teachings, and we'll talk about that in a second. Why is it that we are so prone to translate life experiences in terms of it's all about me, I've done something wrong, or it's all about them, they're being obnoxious, or somebody's doing something to me and I'm a victim. Why do we gravitate towards that nexus of blame or shame? Why instead do we not constantly translate uh, experiences in terms of very neutral, palatable, easy to digest, finding the most pleasant interpretations? Why do we gravitate? Well, that's easy to explain. It turns out the brain through evolution developed a what's called negativity bias. We actually have five times the amount of neural processing devoted to threats in our midbrain than to positive events. Negative experiences get five times the neural weight. If I show you an image of five people looking angry, an image of five people looking happy, an image of five people without any expression on their face, and then a week later come back, you'll remember all of the five angry faces. You'll remember one of the pleasant looking faces, and you won't remember any of the neutral. And this test is done countless times. We give five times more importance to negative events and we gravitate towards negative interpretations. What, due to the brain's negativity bias and another psychological factor known as mood congruence, it's most common to interpret emotional experiences in terms of threat. Either, oh, this means there's something wrong with me, or B, this means there's something wrong with the people in my life. We don't by nature, interpret uh, challenging experiences as non-threats. That's just built into us due to good old natural selection and evolution. So, now I promised you I'd talk about how this overlaps with the Buddha's core teachings. One of the most important teaching in all of the Buddha's talks was the Salatha or the two arrows teaching. And that uh, is a fabulous, wonderful, important teaching that uh, reveals so much of the nature of human suffering. I'll read you a little bit of it, very quick part. The Buddha says, when a naive person has a painful experience, they take it personally, and, they, and therefore they experience self-pity. This individual, taking it personally, resists the experience, denies it, becomes obsessed with getting rid of it and they understand no other way to be or to get rid of painful experiences other than by craving short-term sensual pleasures. And so here's the crux, the Buddha says, this person experiences two kinds of pain. One is the original pain of the unpleasant event, but the second is the mental experience of taking it personally, resisting, and trying to find a way out. It's as if the Buddha said, we were shot by a second arrow. This is a really 
profound uh, intuition in noting that when trying to get rid of or deny or not think about a pleasant, unpleasant event and not turn it into a story, uh, there was a wonderful psychologist, Dan Wegner, who showed that anytime we try to block anything from awareness, it creates a rebound effect. It's known as the ironic process. Whenever we try not to think about uh, an event or not to think about an experience or an idea or a thought, the very attempt to get rid of it actually creates an unconscious watchdog in the right brain that looks out for the thought and creates, ironically, that thought popping up again and again and again. For Wagner's work, he would give people the task, he said, don't think about white bears, i.e. don't think about polar bears. And of course, when he told people to do that, he would put this button in front of them, and the people he told not to think about white polar bears would hit the button more often than the, pers- the people who said, think about white ba- polar bears whenever you want. So telling people not to think about it actually made them think more about the very thing he told them not to think about. That happens every single time we try to repress a memory or a thought or an experience. The Buddha also notes that uh, we have a tendency when we are trying to repress something to constantly seek out short-term pleasures, which we now know today are dopamine secretion, which gives us a temporary relief, but then sets up addiction. And so essentially the attempt to repress, as the Buddha says, causes two kinds of pain. Not only the pain of the very thing we're trying to avoid keeps popping up into awareness, but then also it leads us towards addictive short-term attempts to escape. Now let's jump back to the Buddha. When wise individuals have a painful experience, they don't make it about themselves. They feel one pain, but not two pains. They feel, in other words, the initial emotional sensory, but they don't feel the second mental trying to get rid of it, trying to escape all of the repetitive thoughts created by trying to repress the thought. The Buddha continues, it's as if they they haven't shot themselves with a second arrow. This person understands that all experiences arise in a pass on their own, that short-term pleasures do not get rid of painful experiences, and furthermore, that all pain, all painful experiences is in some way universal. What does that mean? The details of our personal suffering, our personal losses, uh, might feel that they're very personal. But if we step back, we begin to realize that all people experience pain, loss, grief, anger, uh, overwhelm, that we only have so many affects to us, and that really... If we take away the details of an event, the emotions that create the lasting effects are are uncannily universal to all of us. Nobody is alone in their experience. 
For example, the Buddha taught a wonderful story about Kisakatami. Kisakatami had lost her only child, a young boy that she pinned all of her hopes to. And Kisakatami, this young boy, probably around the age of, I think, five or six, was bitten by a snake and died in his mother's arms. So Kisakatami was inconsolable. And over time, her grief didn't process the loss because she was so caught up in why did this happen to me? Why was I, why did I lose my boy? Why did, why was, what did I do wrong? Or why am I constantly not getting anything that I deserve? The Buddha's instruction to Kisangatami was to go down into the, vi the village and return to him with um, a few uh, mustard seeds, which were exceedingly common in ancient Buddha. You, you, you know, mustard seeds were just like everyone had them. But he, he gave her this, uh, this set of, uh, it could only come from a household that did not know loss, that did not have someone die. So Kisugatami went from one household to another asking for mustard seeds. And everybody said, of course, we'll give you mustard seeds. But then she said, I can only get mustard seeds from a household that has not had loss, where no one has died. Every household, somebody had recently died, someone was recently lost to some illness, some grandparent was nearing death and so forth. She could not find any household where loss was not a significant part of that household's experience. And so over time, her grief began to resolve. She began to realize that even though the loss of her child was a personal event on an entirely other level, it was not unique. It was not about her. She didn't do anything wrong. She was not being singled out for punishment by the universe, that loss is the one of the givens of life that we all experience. And it's in this removal of taking things personally or as a unique that the Buddha shows that suffering or painful experiences can be resolved into a story where we make sense and we move ahead with a deeper understanding of the nature of life. Now, before we uh, conclude, I'd like to give you some examples of what a, uh, a coherent uh, narrative of an experience versus the kind that we would like to avoid because they will leave long-term negative ramifications. So due to thankfully years of Buddhist practice and many, many years of therapy and recovery, I over time have, uh, even though I grew up in a very disorganized relationship with my father over the many years of therapy and practice, I can now uh, create a secure um, uh, narrative of an experience. So I asked myself just to as fast as possible narrate what this pandemic has been like for me. 
And I hope it will give an example of what the kind of narrative that creates not only a, that evinces a kind of balance uh, where we integrate emotional experiences into larger perspectives, where we don't take things personally, where we understand the importance of relational bonds and so forth. So this is what I wrote. I didn't really think too much about it when I wrote it. I just wrote it as fast as possible. But what I wrote was when I first learned of COVID-19 in early January, I was concerned about what would happen if it wasn't contained. Still, we were confident enough to travel in February where I taught and explored uh, a new culture in Southeast Asia. Back home in early March, the reality of the pandemic was now clear. And at first I became worried about the health of loved ones, friends, myself, as well as concerned about how vulnerable New York would be, knowing how our population density, how many, I worried about how many people would become sick and was concerned whether hospitals and food supply chains would, would stand the strain. Over time, I realized I could play a positive role given my Buddhist pastoral work in counseling and teaching as well as doing volunteering. And from all those three activities, a sense that I play a positive role allowed me to reduce the anxiety and, and allowed me to feel a greater sense of positive emotions because I could be of use. Now, I hope what this narrative conveyed was that I was integrating emotional experiences into a coherent narrative organization. I started with the beginning. I had a middle about my concerns and then an end about my resolve to uh, be of use due to my pastoral work. I hope that it conveys an appreciation of connection and it doesn't raise my experience to a sense that I'm unique or this is all about me. Now I'm gonna read you examples I've put together of what we don't want, the kind of narratives that actually lead to long-term dysregulation or an inability to turn life experiences into meaning. And I've based this on 15 years of uh, pastoral uh, counseling. Uh, my background is in that. And so uh, I meet with hundreds of people. And over the years, I've gotten a bit of a sense of what the avoidant response or narrative would be in the, and the anxious. So the avoidant response would be, and this is a little bit extreme. I'm kind of exaggerating it to give you a sense. An avoidant person would say, this pandemic hasn't affected me. After all, I don't live in New York. I live in the country. And I have enough food on the table, a roof over my head. So what's there to get worked up about? I just keep my head focused on work. My life hasn't changed much. That's the size of it. Now, from this example, you can see a classic example of avoidance, which is they're blocking any sense of emotional ramifications from being amidst a pandemic. They devalue the need for relational support. They're disinterested in pro-tribal bonds and they lack a concern other than how events manifest for them. It's a wholly dismissive response. And over time, 
this kind of processing of important events turns into someone who is averse of intimacy, who has a sense of emptiness or hollowness because they've blocked awareness of their own emotions. And this is somebody who over time will experience depression because the long-term ramifications of avoidant attachment or emotion blocking is always a sense of anhedonia, a lack of pleasure in life, a lack of meaning. It's our emotions that spare us from depression. If we block our emotions, that's why we wound up in depression. It's a hollowing out of the very uh, resonance of being alive. Now let's get to an anxious preoccupied uh, way of processing the experience. And you'll note that only emotional experiences are mentioned, no coherent narrative arrives. There's a jump in time and there's an extreme focus on self rather than bonding with others. Only one person matters to the anxious preoccupied. So here we go. Here's an anxious view of it. There really couldn't be a worse time for this pandemic to happen because it's coming right after my relationship fell apart. I want to reach out so much to my ex right now, but I looked at their Facebook page and it seems they've already found another relationship. I don't talk to my roommate because she always takes my ex's side, which makes me feel bad, so I avoid her. And now it's impossible to go out on dates because of social distancing. So I'm stuck with a roommate that I can't trust. <laughs> so this is a classic example of someone who is incapable of seeing um, resonant events outside of what's it mean to me. Immediately, this person makes it unique makes it like about me. Immediately this person has no beginning or end, just jumps about from feeling to feeling. This person is constantly circling or preoccupied with their ex and doesn't in any way appreciate the value of bonding with other people. In fact, she doesn't bond with, or he doesn't bond with, I don't want to gender it, could very well be a man, doesn't bond with their roommate because their roommate doesn't take their side. The elevation of feelings above a coherent narrative, uh, the lack of interest in pro-tribal bonds, the lack of concerns about personal ramifications will leave this person essentially constantly on edge and anxious in future um, uh, challenges to come. This person will not be able to turn the pandemic into a meaningful, larger perspective. They will constantly have in the right hemisphere a sense that abandonment is always about to happen because they haven't turned it into a coherent narrative. So in our practice today, we're going to first self-soothe and relax. And then we're going to use some visualizations to help us process what we've experienced so far in this pandemic to place the experience in a coherent chronology, to view the experiences as neither about us in terms of shame or blame, but just something that is happening uh, to everyone around us. And 
in reducing the sense that this is unique or personal, appreciating how universal it is, will grasp the importance of trusting others and relying on connection and the value of pro-tribal actions. So thank you for listening. I hope something in there was interesting. And if not, I'll do better next week. Uh, but uh, now we're going to do a little practice and then go on to questions. The, the practice will be working on what we just talked about. And uh, just want to remind you, if you would like to support my Buddhist pastoral work, um, I work entirely by donation. And um, I also work with an organization that uh, provides uh, uh, support for emergency room doctors, nurses, technicians, and so forth, uh, as well as my teaching. Uh, if you obviously, if you don't have any money, don't don't worry about it. If you would like to support, uh, the Venmo is Dharma D H A R M A P U N X N Y C, or you can go to the same website by that name, and there's a PayPal button. So thank you if you can help, but no worries if you can't. Uh, but you're Donations are certainly appreciated. So let's practice for a little while. And so I'm going to close, take a drink, and then I'm going to close my eyes. And you can, if you want, you can close your eyes or keep them open. You can just uh, change the direction so you that you're sitting in, find a, you can lie down if you want, or just find any kind of comfortable position. You can move your camera so it doesn't see you. If you want to be off screen while we meditate, that's fine. Uh, entirely up to you. Don't feel any need to do anything that makes you uncomfortable. And we're just gonna take a nice in-breath. And we're going to lift our shoulders up. And then before we exhale, we're going to rotate the shoulders back and then breathe out, dropping the shoulders. And we're just going to just feel this open chest that results. Great. This open chest. And then... Two, we're going to take another full in-breath and squinch the muscles in the face really tight, furrowing the brow, pinched nose, clenched jaw, make an ugly face. If I can do it, you can. And then just breathe out, relax. So the first opening up of the chest uh, toned or activated the vagal nerve. The, the second Relaxing of the cranial muscles engages the higher vagal nerve, which relaxes, soothes. And just encouraging the eyes to settle, to not bounce around behind the eyelids. Just send a loving message to your eyes that they can take a break, that they don't have to follow anyone or anything that they can... Um, that they can just use this as a time to relax, settle into the warm pools of the eye sockets. When your eyes settle, your brain will follow, your mind will follow. And then for a third breath, just take a 
full inhalation and, and imagine you're breathing into your belly. So your belly expands like a balloon. And then as you breathe out slowly, relax, release the, the belly so that it, it uh, subsides in a really uh, soothing, pleasant way. Abdominal breathing is deeply associated with um, parasympathetic activation, takes us out of fight, flight. Long exhalations as well. So combining breathing into the belly, the in-breath, filling up the belly, the out-breath, long, smooth, releasing the belly, abdominal breathing, such a wonderful practice. And now that we're aware of the body, see if you can just experience the sensations of your body like stars in a night sky where being less interested about where the sensations are. So for instance, there might be a sensation that I assume is happening in my kneecap, but I'm gonna just try to experience it. My body is like a vast night sky, the sensations of the, the sort of flickering sensations of different parts, my feet, my forehead, my tongue, the belly. It's just all those sensations just don't, if you can, don't attribute them to a map of your body. Just let them be sensations arising and passing. And Just being with those sensations, observing, being with the feeling, the sensation of the breath, being with the sounds. And just trying to be so close to these sensations and so interested in just the sensations of being alive. What is it, like you've never been in a human body before, what are the feelings? And just get to a place where we don't need to add any story. We don't need to chase after any thought this time just becomes about appreciating the sense of aliveness, letting life live through you right now, the energy of life that connects us with everyone else, just returning to it, Returning to a place where there's no personality or no uniqueness, just 
a body breathing, a body digesting, a body with blood flowing, sensations. And if a thought or a memory suddenly slips in and it feels very important or you just find yourself kidnapped by that thought and no longer present, there's nothing to get frustrated about, nothing wrong is happening. It's just the nature of the the mind to chase after thoughts. Just return back with a really soothing breath. There's nothing wrong about slipping away. What's wonderful is the ability to become aware and to return back again and again to your lived experience, to the body, to all those feelings we underappreciate as we walk about in our life, so caught up by our ongoing inner narrative, chatter, inner talk, or lost in our screens. Always remembering to have a nice inhalation into the belly and then a soft release making the breath as rewarding as possible
So at this point, I'd invite you to just allow the breath to still be present in the body, but bring your attention to the area of your mind where you can visualize places or experiences that have happened or that are not present, like for instance, visualize what your kitchen kitchen looks like or your bathroom and just have a sense of where that image appears in your mind. It, some people are, find visuals, visualizing easier than others. That's fine. And if in this exercise you're more comfortable with words and images, you can do it that way too. So what I'd like you to do is first bring to mind an image or just in words a time when you first became aware that or aware of coronavirus, aware of the presence of a virus when did you first hear about it? We're just creating a start to this narrative. And if there was any immediate concerns or uh, stance you took, that's fine. And then for a second image, bring to mind the first time the true ramifications of this virus, this pandemic became clear. When, when do you remember really having the emotional implications be felt in a far clearer way? For some of us, a sense of of anxiety, maybe others a sense of uh, concern or a sense of, of lack of clarity. But just hold a second instance memory in your mind of when in some way the implications became felt knowable If after that there followed yet another event, another time 
where another emotional experience related to the situation we're in. And you could bring in any sense of how the pandemic was affecting you emotionally at this time, were you more anxious, more concerned? Did you become less anxious? Did you become more caught up in work and just relying on focusing as a way not to be overwhelmed? And then lastly, an image or an experience that brings us up to date. Where are you today? How do you, how are you doing today? Has there been any change in the way you feel? See if you can hold these images and piece them into a basic story, very simple. First I became aware, then at first when it became something that the, the enormity of it began to hit me, I felt or I was worried about. And then onwards into where you are today, how you feel today. And see if we can just hold this very simple story without any reliance on taking it personally, knowing that no matter what we're experiencing, other people are experiencing the same challenging emotions. And also, while it's totally okay for us to have an enormous amount of anger at the people, at the head of government that have failed us, at this point in constructing the narrative, just see if we can put together a story of what it is meant in our lives without, on the other hand, it being anything that we believe is completely unique. And in this sequence, can you Locate a time or an event where you realized the importance of relying on others, connecting with others, the value of doing something, helping others. Some insight you've gained 
into the importance of connection in our lives. making sense, turning even the most painful situations or difficult situations into a story that we can tell to others that they'll be able to understand, a story that makes sense of our experience, a story that reminds us our experience is not unique, a story that holds the importance of bonds with others. And so uh, whenever you're ready, um, we can now uh, open our eyes and uh, just Bring with you any feelings that you connected with. 